So, good afternoon, ladies. We are now in the number 11 topic for our doctrine class. And that's the resurrection, ascension, and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's very timely, no? Because we are still celebrating the joys of Easter. So, uh, I want you to be familiar with the liturgical cycle. So first we have, we started Advent. General liturgical uh, season are Advent, then the Christmas and uh, Epiphanies. Then we have the ordinary time, that's the time after the Epiphany. Then Lent, the Paschal Tridium, and uh, they are the during the Paschal Tribune, we celebrate the Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Black Saturday. And then we have the Easter. And Easter season lasts for 50 days. So after the Pentecost, we have the ordinary time. So I would like to share with you and echo with you what Father John Greco from his podcast, Come By Yourself on Easter now, from the gospel, he said of St. Luke's, it says here that this is your hour and the power of darkness. So he said that this is your hour and the power of darkness. So the passion is actually the hour, paradoxically, of Satan. So Christ's greatest victory comes when he gives Satan the most power over him. So we see the devil unleashes a great fury against Christ's goodness on the cross and in the passion and Christ's death. And in that moment, before the devil realizes that the joke was on him, that Jesus is taking on him all the hateful energies of Satan through the switch of mercy turns into love and redemption. And the proof of this is his resurrection. So today, we will divide this class into Christ was buried and descended into hell, Christ's resurrection, Christ's glorious exaltation, and the second coming of Christ. After suffering and dying, Christ's body was buried in a new tomb not far from the place where he had been crucified. Christ's burial showed that he truly died. So God ordered that Christ should undergo the condition of death, that is the separation of the soul from the body. While he remained in the tomb, both his soul and his body, though separated from each other by death, continued being united to his divine person. So because Christ's dead body continued to belong to the divine person, it did not undergo the corruption of the tomb. So Christ's soul went down to hell. This hell was different from the hell of the damned. When Christ descended into hell, those who died before Christ, both righteous and evil, were in this state. The just lived in a state of happiness. They rested in Abraham's bosom, though they still did not have the vision of, of God. 
With Christ's descent into hell, the gates of heaven were opened to the just who had gone before him. The just were awaiting their Redeemer so they could enter at last to the vision of God. Also with his descent into hell, Christ displayed his dominion over the devil. So in an ancient homily, it reads, He the king has gone to search for Adam, our first father, as for a lost ship. He has gone to free from sorrow Adam in his bonds and Eve captive with him. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Resurrection of Christ. On the third day of his death, Jesus was raised to a new life. His body and soul completely transfigured with the glory of his divine person were united. So the Lord's resurrection is the foundation of our faith since it attests that God intervened in human history in order to save mankind. Although the resurrection was an historical event that could be verified by two signs. First, the sign of the empty tomb. And third, the reality of the apostles' encounter with the risen Lord. It still remains at the very heart of the mystery of faith as somebody that transcends and surpasses history. Therefore, the recent Christ, though still possessing a true physical corporal identity, is not subject to physical earthly laws, except when he so wills it. So the recent Jesus was utterly free to appear to his disciples how and where he wished and under various aspects. Christ's resurrection, above all, is the confirmation of all Christ's works and teachings. It is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament and the confirmation of Jesus' divinity. So the Paschal mystery has two aspects. So at the end of time, he will raise up our bodies. From our Lord's resurrection, we should draw down the following. We should have a living faith. Steer up your faith. How? First, by asking our Lord to increase our faith. And also hope. Never despair. Because if you hear the inspiration of God from your formed conscience and follow it, you will return to life. So the desire that grace and chastity might transform us and lead us to live a supernatural life, which is the life of Christ, in other words, to really strive to be saints and also to frequent the sacraments of reconciliation, which enables us to rise again to supernatural life. Now, after his resurrection, Jesus continued his presence among us so as to manifest his new life, to complete the disciples' formation. But this presence ends on the day of ascension. Christ glorious exaltation he ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the father the glorious exaltation comes about through his ascension into heaven 
which took place 40 days after his resurrection and his glorious enthronement in heaven to share as man the Father's glory and to be Lord and King of creation. With ascension, the mission of the Redeemer, the sending of Christ among men in flesh to bring about man's salvation comes to an end. The ascension is the sign of Jesus' new condition. He goes up to heaven to share the Father's throne, not only as the eternal Son of God, but also insofar as he, he is a true man, the victor over sin and death. Since Christ came into the world to redeem us from sin and to lead us to perfect communion with God, his ascension leads us in entering into heaven. Gates of heaven are open to mankind. So Jesus is the supernatural head of mankind, as Adam was in the order of nature. Since our head is in heaven, we who are his members might have the confidence of reaching heaven too. So moreover, he has gone to prepare a place for us in our Father's house. Christ's glorious exaltation, he descended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. The glorious exaltation of Christ comes about through his ascension into heaven, which took place 40 days after his resurrection and his glorious enthronement in heaven to share as man the Father's glory and power and to be Lord and King of creation. So in the creed, we profess that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. By this, we understand that the glory and honor of his divinity, that the Son of God before all ages, the second person of the blessed Trinity, thus one being with the Father, is seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. In his return to be with his heavenly Father, Jesus nevertheless stays with us sacramentally in the Holy Eucharist. Being seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus continues his ministry as universal mediator of salvation. Ten days after his ascension, Jesus sent the disciples, the Holy Spirit, to give mankind the life-giving power he possesses and gather them together in the church so they might form the people of God. After the Lord's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the Virgin Mary was traced in body and soul to heaven, for it was fitting that the Mother of God, who had carried God in her womb, should not undergo corruption in the womb and in imitation of her son. So the church celebrates the feast of Our Lady's Assumption on August 15. The Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. The glorious exaltation of Christ encourages us to leave our gaze fixed on the glory of heaven to sanctify all human realities. It impels us to live by faith since we know that Christ is with us who knows and loves us and who will continue to give us the grace of the Holy Spirit. He will give us his grace to carry out our apostolic work and bring souls to him. 
He awaits for us in the tabernacle. The second coming of Christ, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Christ the Lord is king of the universe, but all created realities are not yet subject to him. He gives men and women time to prove their love and fidelity. His definitive triumph will take place at the end of time. He has not revealed his second coming, but encouraged us to be vigilant. Before the second coming, a final assault by the devil will take place with great calamities and other signs. From Matthew 24, verse 20 to 30. Then Christ will come as a supreme and merciful judge to judge the living and the dead. This is the universal judgment. Secrets of each heart will be revealed along with each person's conduct towards God and neighbor. This judgment will confirm the sentence each person received at death. All men and women, according to their deeds, will be filled with life or condemned for eternity. In the final judgment, the saints will receive publicly the reward they merited for the good they did. Justice will thereby be reestablished, since in this life, it often happens that those who do evil are praised, while those who do good are despised or forgotten. The message of the last judgment calls man to conversion while God is still giving them the acceptable time of salvation. So with this, I end with a, with a video. Is everyone called to holiness? The first question we need to ask here is, what is holiness? Holiness isn't having some special gift. It doesn't mean performing extraordinary deeds, miracles, or having frequent visions. No, holiness is what happens in a normal Christian life through the practice of the virtues, a life rooted in prayer and the increase of sanctifying grace. Holiness then is not just for a chosen few. It's a call that is directed at each and everyone. We are all called to walk the path to holiness. All right then. So practicing virtues, spending time in prayer, and increasing in grace. Hmm. Sounds like a lot of work. Well, yes, especially if you lack motivation. Without motivation, you can't accomplish anything. So where do you get your motivation from? What is the motor which moves us along the path to sanctity? It is love. Without love, no progress. But when we take love seriously, we don't have to worry about inertia. Love doesn't settle for what barely gets by. It has a momentum of its own. Take the following example. Two lovers sit on a bench whispering and talking. Now, would you ever hear them say anything like this? Do I really have to see you again tomorrow? Is one rose enough or do you expect me to get you even more flowers? Now, I've already spent five minutes with you. Is that enough? Can I go now? No, you don't hear anything like that between lovers because love doesn't ask about the minimum. Love doesn't seek what is barely enough. Love wants fullness. Love desires the good of the other. It seeks to bring joy to the beloved. 
It doesn't set up lazy limits. And in this, we can begin to see why love has to be at the very center of the Christian moral life and the Christian faith. As long as my relationship with God is dominated by questions like, do I really have to go to church on Sunday? Or do I really have to take time to pray? I have a problem, but I certainly don't have a living relationship with God. But exactly this, a living relationship with God, is what we are all called to. And only someone who loves will truly keep the commandments. Only someone who loves will ask what God wants for his life. Only someone who loves will try to respond to the love with which he was loved first. Love doesn't rest until it is united with the one it loves. Love is the motor on our path from mediocrity to sanctity. Any Christian who wants to be Christian in more than name only must desire to become holy. He may be well aware that he's weak and a sinner, but he won't be content with it. He will never settle for mediocrity. Holiness is his destiny, a destiny to which all of us are called.